Hi, welcome to This Is My Neighbor. I'm Amy. And I'm Carrie, Amy's husband of more than three decades. Together, she and I have six beautiful children and uh, have built a wonderful life together. Amy is one of the most compassionate and generous people I know. She was born with assume positive intent uh, tattooed on her arm. Amy? Uh, Carrie is one of the funniest and smartest people I know, and he's a great dad and a wonderful human being. Thank you. So Amy came to me a a couple of months and about 50 takes ago and said, I want to do a podcast. And what, what made you want to do a podcast? There's lots of podcasts out there. Lots. So we live in an increasingly contentious world. It's all around us. It's a world full of loud voices and contention and hate. Uh, But I believe that those are the loudest voices and that there are people out there quietly living a better way. Um, And I think that we can make a difference uh, one person at a time. So I want to focus this podcast on those stories, the stories of people who inspire us to do better. If not, I guess there's always dogs. That's right. And, you know, we want this to be focused. We've made a commitment to our, to each other, and we're making a commitment to you to keep this positive. In order to fully explain our podcast, um, this first episode is, is going to talk about how we got to where we are, or at least what a few think, people think caused us to be where we are. Um, and that kind of started with a that started with an article that you shared with me, right, about why the last 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. Do you want to talk about that story? Yeah, so this was an article in The Atlantic by Jonathan Haidt, and that was actually the title of the article, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And he uses the story of the Tower of Babel as a metaphor for our modern world, uh, more specifically the confusing of the language and the scattering of the people after the fall of the tower. He says, I'm going to quote him, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. And then he goes on to say, it's a metaphor for what is happening, not only between red and blue, but within the left, within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. And so That's, it's really interesting too that that he points that out because it's not I mean we've seen in our uh, half a century or so divisions between right and left and Muslim and and Jew, all, Catholics and Protestants Catholic, in Catholic, Ireland. Right. But now those fractures are occurring within those groups. Now it's battle between the ultra left and the medium left and the low left and the ultra right and the low right. The fractures are not just uh, among 
what have been typically disparate communities, but actually fractures within those communities. So what does he think? Well, he goes on to compare the development of technology that brought the world together to the rise of the tower. So the telephone, email, chat rooms, Facebook, Google Translate. And then he thinks that 2009 was the beginning of the end. So the tower was... Can I jump in here really quickly? One of those technologies was literally called the Babelfish, right? Do you remember Mm -hmm. Babelfish, Alta Vista? And in when Babelfish came out, right? Because I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. And the whole universal translator idea, I thought, look at this. And I thought, oh, look, this is us regaining what was lost at the Tower of Babel. And it's even called the Babelfish, which is a mythological creature that could translate any language. Okay, so. So he, he believes that 2009 was the beginning of the end. And that was when Facebook introduced the like button. So. They, they didn't just introduce the like button. They introduced the like and dislike button together. And I contend that had Facebook made a different choice and only had a like button, because the, the dislike button now allows us to explicitly, where before, if you just click the like button or you didn't click the like button, that was an implicit sign that either you didn't like it or you didn't care enough to like it, right? But now you could explicitly and anonymously say, I dislike what you're saying. And you could hide behind your screen. Um, The same year, Twitter gave us the ability to retweet. And then in 2012, Facebook followed with the share button, which has become a standard on most platforms. So by 2013, the game had changed. And that's when the tower fell. So why was that change so impactful? A post could go viral. A person could become internet famous overnight. On the flip side, a person could get thousands of hateful comments. People started getting canceled for voicing unpopular opinions. We started judging people for how they parent, how they dress, their looks, what they eat, what they believe or don't believe, how they spend their money. And everyone seems to have an opinion on what's best for everyone. Kids started using social media as a new avenue for bullying each other. And I also believe that not just kids, but adults started bullying each other. Adults started bullying kids. Adults started bullying adults. And it just seems to be getting more and more prevalent. Do you know that? We live in this cancel culture. Right. Right. Sorry for interrupting you. You know that every year at work... As part, I have to take information security training and file management training and ethics training and anti-bullying training. They have to train adults, professional. I work, I work with, I'm not bragging here because I am a hillbilly at heart, but I work with professionals. I work in a professional industry and they have to train us not to bully each other. Isn't that incredible? And it really came to a head for me. Do you mind if I share the story about the girl in the TSA line? Sure. So uh, during the pandemic, I had a, a family member who was who was in the ICU, wasn't doing very well, was on a ventilator with COVID. So I rolled the dice and, and flew out to be with them. And while we were waiting in the line for the TSA, if you haven't noticed already, I like to talk. I like to talk a lot. Sometimes I have to rein him in. She does. She she uses a taser to do so, folks. 
So I, I like to get to know people. I like to meet people. I like to hear their stories. And I was talking to the people in the, the TSA line with me, and, and one happened to be an older couple that was sharing their, uh, that was celebrating their 50th anniversary. Their kids had bought them a, a, an all-inclusive trip to a resort in Mexico that was following COVID protocols and was, was kind of doing that because the kids, the family couldn't get together. So they wanted their, their parents to be able to celebrate this landmark and, and, you know, a number of other people. And so we're in this line and then I, I noticed that it stops, completely stops moving. And I look up and there's no kidding about a hundred, 150 foot gap in the line uh, between some people just a couple in front of us and and then the the actual line and I look up there and there's a little girl who has her self and her suitcase turned back towards her parents and she is insisting that they buy her a candy bar before she moves a step farther now obviously there are no stores or vending machines in the TSA line so they were making promises and finally they had negotiated the promise and she turned around and took about four steps and decided Eating that candy was going to make her thirsty, so she'd better demand something to wash it down with. She turned around and restarted negotiations. And I looked at my watch, and I, I saw this, this older couple getting more and more nervous about making their flight. I walked up past the parents and addressed the little girl and said, Little girl, look behind you. All of these people have paid good money and taken great risks to get on a plane to go someplace. That couple back there, they've been married 50 years, and they're going to celebrate. And you're going to make them miss their celebration because you're a brat. Now turn around. Did you really call her a brat? I did not call her a brat. (laughs) But, you know, I talk too much, so I'm trying to whittle this down. I said, now you turn around, turn your suitcase around, and march through that line. And as I started to walk away, I turned back to her and looked and said, just so you know, you may think this is fun, but your parents are doing you no favors. I got back in line, and I won't tell you that people clapped, but they did. And the line, the line started moving. And so I got home, and I was relating this story to, to my family. And my daughter said something I hadn't thought of. Now, considering I've been in technology for 30 years, it should have actually been my first thought. But my daughter said, Dad, I wonder if you've gone viral. I hadn't even thought of that. And then I thought of the implications, and I started worrying. So we we started scouring the Internet to see if somebody had filmed the interaction because, you know, I, I was suddenly worried now about my job and my reputation because it all matters on the title that it's posted with and or those first couple of comments, right? So the title, that incident's either... Man gives bratty girl comeuppance in airport, or old grumpy codger bullies child in airport, right? It all matters. It's this very same situation, but those two things could not be farther apart on the on the get you canceled scale. So, is our problem? Can we blame this on social media? Well, there's several theories out there. Um, David Brooke, also an article in The Atlantic um, titled, How America Got Mean, has another theory. So he spent the last eight years studying why we have become so sad and also why we've become so mean. I think those are probably related. 
He's talked to restaurant owners who've had to throw customers out for rude behavior, something that didn't used to happen, and nurses who are leaving the profession because of abusive patients. So 20 years ago, two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. Now it's less than half. Hate crimes are up. Murder rates are surging. Not surging. They're surging. And he says there are several theories out there. There's the technology story, which we just talked about. Then there's the sociology story, and we stopped participating in community organizations and are more isolated. The demography story. Um, so America is long a white-dominated nation. is becoming much more diverse country, and a change that has it's a change that's made millions of white Americans panic. And then there's the economy story. High levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people afraid, alienated, and pessimistic. But even though he thinks that all of these stories contribute to the problem, he says the main issue is that we now live in a society devoid of moral education. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. So then he goes on to tell the story of a breakdown of moral education. Morals and etiquette were part of public education, religious education, community organizations, and they were taught in the family. And in the 60s is when public education started to remove this from the curriculum. Fewer people attended church, and we've seen a breakdown in community involvement. Let me go, let me stop you there and ask you a question about that. So are we saying that if you don't go to church, you're a bad person? Oh, no, I think he's saying that church is one of those places where morals and etiquette were taught, just like in school and community organizations. And fewer people are involved in community organizations now, the places that foster morals, like Girl Scouts and um, 4-H and charity organizations. And the idea that justice and right and wrong are not matters of personal taste and that an objective moral order exists has faded from our public conscience. But it wasn't a perfect system, obviously, because racism and sexism still existed, and it didn't create perfect people, but it did give us guidance on how to be a good citizen, friend, and neighbor, and it discouraged selfishness. But basically, we now live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. So, with all of that, we're going to pack up our stuff and go live in the, in the wilds of Montana or the great frozen northern Canada, right? Or do you think maybe there's another solution? Well, there is one more theory, and that is, um, I read that in Axios, and that was Tina Reed, and she claims that freakouts, burnout, and bullying are all here to stay because of the COVID pandemic. So essentially, she says it changed us forever. It changed our, our way of thinking and our culture forever. But So if we went to Canada, maybe we'd avoid any more pandemics, and people. That might be the answer. No, actually, I think there's another answer. Regardless of the reasons we're here now, so it could be any of these reasons or all of them, but I believe there's a solution. And so in an increasingly contentious world, uh, this question was answered by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. The answer to a healing our fractured communities and homes and our divisive culture wars, it starts with each one of us, one person at a time, and we can each be the change that we all so desperately need. So, in Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 25, 
A lawyer asks Jesus what he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds with a question and asks the lawyer what is written in the law. And the lawyer answers, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And then he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I find it interesting that Jesus responds with a parable. He doesn't say, well, the person who lives next door or across the street from you. He doesn't say the people you go to church with or your friends, the people you work with. He doesn't even just cover it all by just saying everyone. He tells a simple story with many layers of meaning that can have application to everyone in all walks of life and many situations. So most people have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And I just, I want to say here, whether whether you're a, a Christian, whether you're Jewish, believe in Islam, you're Buddhist, you're atheist, atheist. agnostic, let's, let's all just agree that among the other things you may or may not believe Jesus Christ to have been, he was at least a great teacher and philosopher. So can we can we agree with on that? And and what so what what did he tell this this lawyer who's my neighbor? I think I remember that he wrote down a list of people like Hiram Schnookum, Jimothy Williams, right? He wrote down a list of the guy's neighbors. Is um, that that no, what he, he did? He told a story. Oh. Oh. What was I must have been sleeping that day in Sunday school. What was the story? He told the story of the Good Samaritan. Like I said, even if, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard the term Good Samaritan. We have Good Samaritan laws. Uh, it's, the term is thrown around in popular culture. And so I just want to read it through and talk about some of its aspects. So a certain man, or should I have you read it? You want to just... Go back and forth paragraphs. I like that. Sure. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my my Bible reading voice too. Oh, for good. This. A certain man went down from Jerusalem and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that shewed mercy on him. And then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. So in this story, a Jew is traveling to Jerusalem. He's beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Not one, but two fellow Jews see him and pass by on the other side of the road to avoid having to help him. So maybe they were in a hurry or had an appointment. Maybe they didn't want to get involved. Maybe they were afraid that there were still thieves around. You see this guy beaten up, robbed, and left on the side of the road. They're afraid. And the, the Levite was forbidden from touching a dead body, but he didn't even go to check to see if it was a dead body, right? 
No, he didn't even see, go to look. To, he passed on the other side of the road, so he didn't even go check to see if he was alive. So the next person to come along is a Samaritan, and this distinction is important. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say there's three dudes, right? He's not like Jim, Bob, and Dave walk into a bar. So it must be important. The Jews and Samaritans hated each other. If you know history or Bible history, um, 700 years before the Assyrians had um, come into Israel, they had attacked the northern kingdom and carried, carried off the ten tribes. Those who were left were the Samaritans. Those who were left, they'd intermarried with the Assyrians, and they had adopted some aspects of the Assyrian religion. Um, so the Jews considered them to be apostate and unclean. The Samaritans hated the Jews because the Jews looked down on them. And um, it was basically, it was biblical racism. And I think that Jesus specifically used a Samaritan in the story to illustrate to the people that he was teaching in a dramatic way that we should love everybody and treat them with respect. Even the people we don't like, the people who are different from us, the people we disagree with. And loving them means more than just lip service. So the Samaritan interrupted his journey to help. He didn't call 911 and move on. He didn't contract it out. He treated his wounds. He picks the man up, puts him on his donkey. Now he has to walk. And also says he took him to an inn and continued to take care of him. So he didn't take him to the inn and drop him off. He actually stayed and took care of him. He even left extra money with the innkeeper to help cover the cost. And he checked back later to see if he owed him any more money. So I think the point that Jesus is making here is that loving other people isn't always going to be easy or convenient and often takes effort on our part. And we may even have to go out of our way. It might even make us uncomfortable sometimes. And we don't get to choose who to love if if we want to to follow God, right? Isn't that that what he's saying? We we don't or we don't get to choose who we serve, I guess is a better way to say it. And serving others you don't automatically love that person. Sometimes you serve people that you don't really love, but that's what causes you to love others is serving them. Yeah. And it's hard to it's hard to hate somebody that that you're serving. But this is the message of Christianity: love God and love your neighbor, the two great commandments. And a message it's a message that gets lost and forgotten sometimes in our culture wars, and it's a message that has broad application application for everyone, religious or not, across all cultures and across all races. Recently, we've had the Maui wildfires. Do you want to talk about the concept of ohana? Uh, sure. It's creating loving relationships with, with more than just blood relatives. So it, it's developing a sense of familial care and devotion to all members of the human family. So it's extending out what we define as family. And, we, and so this idea of of Ohana is that we're not connected by blood or by uh, religion. They're, the people are bound, uh, they're bound together by general compassion, culture, support, loyalty. Uh, to become part of someone's Ohana is a great honor. And this social media word of friend is, is just, a, it's a faint shadow of that, right? Of that, of that Ohana. Um, this is, you know, it's becoming really rare. 
and the, the beauty and value of Ohana is becoming more and, and more obvious. Uh, I, I, I read an article while well, I was kind of looking into Ohana and researching it, and I don't know if they still do this, but as, as part of Ohana, a couple would give for adoption uh, their oldest child to another family, thus tying them forever to that to that family because they're the child that they gave birth to is now being uh, now being cared for by the other family, and that other family's welfare directly impacts this child's. Anyway, pretty cool. So, what does that have to do with Maui fires? Did we mention that Ohana is a Hawaiian concept? I don't know that we did that. So it has to do with Hawaiian fires because that concept of Ohana that came out during the Maui wild or after the aftermath of the Maui wildfires in the in CBS News Sacramento. I read an article about the Hungry Heroes Hawaii, and they loaded mounds of food, water, and supplies for communities impacted by the wildfires. And all of this stuff is being trucked into West Maui, where access is very scarce. One of the volunteers told CBS News, we came over here and established connections with all of the restaurants that were already cooking for people here for free. So these are restaurants there in West Maui that have been that have been impacted by the fire that are just cooking for people, to doing what they can. West Maui is where some of the most isolated communities are in need of food and supplies, and everyone there came together to share the spirit of Ohana. It's hope and strength that Chef David and his wife Linda of Poppy's Ohana continue to share even in a time of tragedy. Linda said, we are here to be the light, here to be the hope. We are waiting for our Sunday morning. This is how we are going to come out strong. And David said, we are going to do what we can, feed the community, be the light. <clears throat> we know that this is a disaster, but we know that God can turn ashes into beauty. In let's see, this is in another mm -hmm. article I read. This was in Emporia, Kansas, which is near Kansas City. So this community came together to support a family who no longer lives in the area that has, they lived in Kansas and then moved to Maui. Edgar Rodriguez and his family no longer live in, in the city, but this community has rallied to help support them as their new home was reduced to, to rubble. So wait, they had an Ohana in Kansas? Yep. Cool. They had that extended family there in Kansas. And while he lived in Emporia, he worked at Mulready's Pub, and the owners have decided to take care of one of their own. So Meg Worthing is Mulready's owner, and she told KVOE that no matter where the Rodriguez's live, they are Emporians, and the city always takes care of its own. And while the family tries to rebuild their lives, they are also doing what they can to help others affected by the fires. And so the pub will continue to collect donations for the Rodriguez family and will donate a minimum of 10% of all sales to the family. But Edgar Rodriguez shows up again. Yeah, the very next article I read had, I saw a familiar name. I saw the name Edward, Edgar Rodriguez. And I thought, wait, I've seen that name before. And I had to go back and look. And sure enough, it was the same Edgar Rodriguez. And he... And his family lost their Lahaina home in the flames. And since those days, he has been shepherding supplies to those who stayed behind in the close portion of the island with the Pacific Whale Foundation that he works for. 
This is a marine conservation nonprofit. And this foundation sprung into action in the aftermath of the fire collecting donations for its workers who lost homes and utilizing the boats that they would normally use for tours, tours to deliver supplies to areas in need. Dana Garland is with the foundation. She said, it's people helping people. We don't know how to sit around and wait. So just to encapsulate this, got a guy who picks up from his home in Kansas, moves to paradise, essentially, where once in a while they have typhoons, there's some volcanoes, those kind of things. But it's lush and it's green and it's beautiful and it's wet and it catches fire. And this guy loses everything. His ohana back in, o in Kansas is working for him because he has nothing. Sending donations over this ohana, this Kansas ohana. And he's in Hawaii with his boat, which I am guess he's now living on because he doesn't have a house. And he's taking care of his Hawaiian ohana, delivering supplies to them, not worrying about rebuilding his house or recovering whatever. Just that's, a, that's an incredible story. In The Guardian, another, another article I read, there are boat tour companies that are using vessels to make deliveries. Members on the air services are using its cargo hold to bring donations to the island around Lahaina. Um, the, the remaining residents have organized donation hubs and volunteering their time to help residents come get supplies and distributing those in the area, helping them receive medical care. Everybody is just jumping in to do whatever it takes, says Lisa Vogt. Um, she's with Rome Maui, a private air service that's been transporting donations to the island. And the work is intensive. The people who are volunteering are reporting working 16-hour days as they try to get the right supplies in the hands of the right people. Communication's a challenge, but the community has leapt into action. This effort has come together with the help of local volunteers. The owner of a car service drove the group around. Uh, he was a local man. He wanted to ensure supplies got to the right places. Alberto Jesus with Primo VIP car services spent hours with workers from a nonprofit driving them from place to place, but declined when offered payment for the service. This comes from the heart, he said. And, and you know, think of think of the extra coolness of that service, right? It's one thing for me to give them a ride in in my seventy five hoopty. It's another thing he's driving these people and these supplies around. I mean, I assume Primo VIP car services; <laughs> those are like Lincolns and Cadillacs, right? So, so how cool is that? Anyway. Seeing the community come together has been a bright spot for many aid workers. Um, Chris Alway with Direct Relief said, It's hard seeing this, referring to the destruction, but the bright side is seeing it bring people together and the resilience of the people. So that's what the, these are the kind of stories that, that we want to tell. We want to talk about all of the, all of the good things, and, and it's out there, isn't it? It's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of it. They're hard to find because there's so much, because we dwell so much on the hate and contention. It's You kind of have to dig for these stories, but they're out there. The other voices are louder. They are, and that's, you know, there's a flutter of activity. There's all of those things, and, and you have to wipe away the stuff that's just noise so that you can look for, well, I'll just say it, so, so that we can see what the real issues are. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to get rid of the noise that 
that clang and angry sounds that we hear and fish those stories out. And ultimately inspire people to to make a change and be part of and be part of the change. I think we can ultimately the answer to all of this hatred and discontent and is is just like Jesus has asked us to do, to love our neighbor. We can do this one person at a time, and it's already happening. And these these stories can inspire can inspire us to do that. And so we have a challenge. We're going to have a challenge this week. But I, I, I want to add something here. Okay. I want to I add something here. This is not meant to be preachy. We're on this journey with you all because, at least for myself, I'm not perfect at this. I have a long way to go. I hate lots of strangers. They drive cars and they dare share the road with me when when they're really not meant to. So I just want to I just want to make sure everybody knows if you decide to come back for a second or third time that you're not going to be preached to. We're right on the road with you, right? Mhm. So what's the challenge? The challenge is to look for someone that you can serve. And it doesn't have to be big, someone that you can serve, but the challenge is it, it can't be somebody that you already love. It can't be a family member or a friend has to be a stranger or either a stranger or somebody that you don't like or somebody that you disagree with or somebody that you wouldn't normally that you wouldn't normally do something for and i had a challenge somebody challenged me to do this i was a professor in college way a long time ago challenged us to do this it was an assignment and i thought this was going to be a hard assignment but when you're actually have this in the forefront of your mind and you're actually looking for opportunities it's not hard at all and i found that there were opportunities daily more than once a day these opportunities came up and some of them were small opportunities whether it was to help the little old lady in the grocery store with her cart or whether it was a big opportunity to help someone who in my case help somebody move somebody that I didn't know very well. It was a pretty easy assignment in the end because there are opportunities all around us to help people and to serve people and to love people who we wouldn't normally pay attention to. So that's our challenge to you is to, this week, look for somebody to love. And like we said in the beginning, the love doesn't always, isn't always there at first. But we love people that we serve. It's really hard to hate somebody or to dislike somebody that you're in the trenches with, that you're doing something nice for. And so it starts with an action. And I always like to say love is an action word. That's our challenge to you this week. And do you have anything to add? Uh, Just a couple of quick things. Uh, But you said we love the people we serve. I think the conventional wisdom is we serve the people we love. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what Jesus said. So I like that. I love that. We love the people we serve. Then the other thing is, very few, if any, of people listening are either Jewish or Samaritan. So I want you to go find that story, and I want you to replace it with whatever it is, right? Um, that's that's the other thing I would do is, 
is relate that story to you and put somebody in there. All right, well, this is good. And I'm, I'm really glad this is, you know, this is how, uh, this is how Amy lives her life. Uh, and I'm just trying to learn from her. And, and I can't wait to get some of these stories out, especially those experiences where we've been served. Until next week. I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And this is Who Is My Neighbor? <laughs>